got me turned on, Jeremy? Can everybody hear me okay? If I look up in 15 minutes and everybody's gone, I'll know (laughs) I'm not doing all that well. Um, uh, I'm just going to say this. um, When I was preparing the sermon, my first run-through was about 25 minutes, and I was informed that wasn't long enough. So I prayed that God would help me lengthen the sermon. If you've ever prayed for patience, you know what happened. We're going to be here a while, so... (laughs) Just so you know, the donuts will still be there. So, um, Church discipline, the outpouring of God's love, actually. Happy Father's Day, fathers, grandpas. Um, always brings to mind celebrating dads and grandpas and papas. Um, the thing that they're best known for, discipline, right? Discipline. Today we're going to try and set the record straight. <clears throat> about what a father's discipline is really all about. Uh, today's message, sub, subtitled, The Outpouring of God's Love. So when we think of church discipline, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Do we think of some notion of church leaders and elders and uh, deacons pushing their weight around, um, judgmentally or self-righteously pushing poor little parishioners Um, innocent members who don't deserve it. Sadly, just like there's some fathers who kind of pursue punitive punishment to their kids, there have been some poor examples of church discipline in the past. But this should not be so. Um, Indeed, it wasn't intended to be like this by our Heavenly Father. Uh, There are surprisingly many scripture passages that address this with this subject. Um, Specific passages can be found in places like Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, uh, James, Galatians, Hebrews. Um, They all have passages that I wouldn't have mind focusing on for this subject. But where we're going to turn is kind of what the iconic passage that everybody thinks about, Matthew 18. The, uh, The primary text in that chapter is 15, verses 15 to 17. But it's amazing how verses 1 through 14 set up 15 to 17. And so we're going to look at the entire passage, um, not the entire chapter, just 1 through 17 this morning. So um, because I'm preaching in Daniel's stead today, um, he was going to do this when we were first planning it, and they decided they wanted an elder to do it instead. So... um, We're going to stand while we read Matthew 18. Verse, verse starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you enter life, crippled or lame, than with two hands, two feet, and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray so we can get started. Lord, I thank you so much for the word that you've given to us and for the minds that you've given to us to be able to seek it out and dig into it and understand. Thank you for your gift of, of language so that we can communicate with you and you with us. Open our hearts and our minds today so that we can know better who you are and what you have in store for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So my goal today is um, to show how Christ instituted church discipline as a guardrail within the church to lovingly protect the flock, and to bring obstinate sitters back into the body. I think one of the most beautiful, what I would call life parables, uh, that God ever instituted is the family itself. Uh, in a family led by a loving father who pursues godliness in his dealings with his wife and his children, we actually get a very beautiful view, a uh, picture of what God's love and how corporate or church discipline should be done. Uh, within the family, you see fathers and mothers both correcting and adjusting their children out of love for them, knowing that their children may get hurt physically, emotionally, or psychologically if they don't step in and adjust the course. Of course, the reaction from the kids, mom and dad, you're spoiling my fun. Mom and dad, you just don't understand, you know. Um, but it's out of love, a concern for their current and their eternal well-being that we step in and adjust the course. Is this not true? I mean, think about it. If, um, if you saw a parent who didn't do that, wouldn't you wonder much about whether they love their children? Um, it might show how they're more concerned about themselves than their children, which isn't, either, which isn't good either. But that's not a topic for today, and it's probably better served by a different preacher than what you got today. <clears throat> so today we're going to focus on church family and what God the Father has instilled in our household for our own good, namely church discipline. There are many scripture passages that deal with the topic, and by looking at them, um, you begin to understand the characteristics of God regarding church discipline. Um, and why it's something that is not to be shunned, but embraced, because of its intense love that it shows. Um, I don't intend to look at all the passages that address the, the subject. We just don't have time this morning. Uh, however, I, uh, we do welcome uh, your study and your comments, uh, digging deeper into this subject. Um, Next week, not this week, but next week, we're going to have a joint ABF with a Q&A uh, addressing the last eight-week sermon series. So please, if you can, process your thoughts, your notes, listen, whatever. If you've got questions, consolidate them so that we can, um, we can address those then next week. So by way of review, over the last seven weeks, um, our, uh, our conversations have centered around sin, salvation, and sanctification. We learn how to identify our sin and how we should approach correcting our personal sin, uh, how we should grow as a believer, which is called sanctification. To clarify, sin is our separation from God. Sanctification is our growing in our faith and our wisdom towards God. Uh, we've also learned that we need to approach others our believing brothers and sisters, and, and help them with their sin. At the risk of, um, 
appearing to be an appeaser to the pastors. I believe that uh, they really, over the last few weeks, have done a masterful job in, in outlining and detailing the points, and I found them rather convicting. Um, but now we need to turn our attention to understanding why dealing with sin as a corporate body of Christ is critical. Um, individual accountability is the beginning of church discipline. If we deal with the little things early enough, the big things rarely appear. However, because our fallen nature and our, and our sinful nature, the big things, they will come, and we need to know how to deal with them. This brings us to Daniel's cliffhanger from last week, if you remember. Um, what if we hold each other accountable and they don't listen? Then what? Well then, for the good of the individual and the church body, we have to turn to Matthew 18. There are a couple things I think need mentioned about all this first. Um, we have to recognize and reject our sin. Secondly, um, we need to grow in our faith and our, uh, in our own spiritual journey so that we can move on to the third thing, which is then to be able to help others in the sin that we find them in. Um, Daniel did a terrific job last week showing how this was done by breaking down Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5, if you remember. He explained how to deal with logs and specks in our eyes. Um, interesting, the log is yours and the speck is your neighbor's. Um, so I just want to piggyback off that to make an illustration. Jesus reminds us in this analogy that before we worry about the speck in anybody else's eye, we need to identify the log in our own. Um, the point is that we're supposed to take the neighbor's speck out of their eye. But obviously, it's only after we've removed the log from our own. This leads us to the concept of accountability. There's two passages in Hebrews and one in Ecclesiastes that speak to believers and instruct us that we must not go off on our own and forsake the assembly. Um, you don't need to turn there. I'll just read them real quick. Um, if you want to write it down to make sure I got it right later, you can do that. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Staying connected and in communion with your fellow believers and with uh, the people in your church family, it's not a ploy. It's not that Jesus wants to get more money from you at offering time. Uh, or keep you from sleeping in or having fun on Sundays. It's because God knows that man left to himself will never follow him. That's why we need each other. We need guardrails to keep us on the narrow way to Christ. Those guardrails are the fellow members of your local body, our extended family, Martinsdale Community Church, and secondarily, as a worldwide church in general. It's actually interesting to consider how accountability grows with us um, and, is, and is sometimes we press it upon our children involuntarily when they're young. Um, but then kind of as a rite of passage as we grow up, uh, we begin seeking it as we mature. Uh, 
we not only seek accountability voluntarily, uh, but we seek out ways to impose it upon ourselves. Uh, we do this, and it's, it's a good thing. We do this through accountability partners, mentors, uh, and the like. So we can, stay, we can stay tuned in with Christ and his desires for us and walk with him. The concept of accountability is ultimately what Jesus points us to in Matthew 18 out of his great love for us. Church discipline begins as a one-on-one -on -one exercise and culminates in excommunication if necessary. Um, but the question is, do we really do, re do, we really do that anymore? Uh, is excommunication really something that we're supposed to do in our evolutionary advanced culture? I tell you what, we'll get back to that in just a minute. Um, the foundations of our discussion on church discipline are twofold. First, God's holiness and love for his name and God's love for his people and his church. Let's start with God's holiness. If, if we're being honest, we should probably always start there, God's holiness. In anything we discuss or think about, should start with God's holiness. Holiness is a fairly simple word to understand. It means to be set apart and not seen as common. It's not a word used in everyday language today, unless you're part of the church, perhaps because it's reserved for a more pure purpose as dedicated to the separation of sinful and not sinful. But it's easy to see in the Old Testament when, one, when God was given the instructions on the building of the temple. He even called a shovel that was dedicated to scooping out ashes from the temple as holy. And that just means because its only purpose was scooping out ashes from the temple. So holiness means separateness with a connotation of sinfulness. Or let's say sinlessness. That'll be better. I got a scowl from David in the front row. I knew I messed up. Um, so with this in mind, I'd like to look at Numbers, and you can turn there if you'd like, Numbers chapter 5, 1 through 4. Seems like an odd place to go, um, but it makes quite, a, quite an illustration that I'd like to talk about in regards to God's holiness. Numbers 5, 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and anyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You should put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. And put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. God cannot be near sin. Verse 3 spells it out very clearly. They may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. Clarify this a bit. Where God is, there cannot be any sin or defilement. But my point in bringing this into the discussion is to show how God feels about his holiness and how seriously he takes it. The reason for God requiring this separation are twofold. First, protecting God's holiness and keeping defilement from him. Second, protecting the rest of the camp from defilement or disease. Imagine having to remove yourself from the camp and out into the empty wilderness. Let's think about that a second. The camp offers safety, security, fellowship, and support. Imagine having to say goodbye to your wife, your husband, your children, your parents, because you're ceremonially unclean until such a time that you're no longer ceremonially unclean. The point here is really unmistakable. More important than our convenience more important than our relationships and those of our loved ones is the holiness of our great God. God is protecting himself, and don't miss this, his people. 
This is why God takes the holiness of the church so seriously. It's to be his representation on earth until Christ comes back. If, we under, or if you understand what God's doing with, uh, with Israel in the, in the Old Testament, then church discipline starts to make all kinds of sense. God's simply changing or instituting a new way of doing the same thing he has always done, protecting his name and his people. To allow sin and defilement in the church is to take lightly the holiness of God himself. This is a weighty matter. We only have to look in Acts at the example of Ananias and Sapphira to determine how God takes seriously the holiness of his church. And the way that he, uh, he hates making things of church common. Uh, I'm not going to go there today. The, the, the passage is in Acts 5, if you'd like to look that up. Um, but where I want to go next is how seriously God takes the protection of his name. You can find it in the Ten Commandments, number three specifically, uh, where God, God says to not take his name in vain. This is, this is almost a follow-up to the first two commandments uh, regarding the holiness of God and the seriousness of who he is and how God is not to become common. I think of our culture today and how the phrase, oh my God, is used. Um, for you guys in the younger generation, you know, you're doing your texting and your Facebook and your Twitter and I think there's a couple others that I don't even know what they are. Um, and the message is a capital OMG, which stands for, oh my God. It's exactly what it means. You can, use the, uh, you can use the abbreviation, but you're still using his name in vain. God says in Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. In vain means flippantly, common, without regard to reverence. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Christ has charged the church with the proclamation of who God is, what he has done, and to be holy as God is holy. This begins to give us a much more solid understanding of how seriously the church is to be about the business of Christ. Like Pastor Jeremy expressed so well a couple weeks ago, of course, I'm old. It might have actually been a few weeks ago. Um, to love someone is to be willing to step out and save them from self-destruction. If we love, we discipline. If we hate, we leave alone. The concept was the inspiration um, in one of the chapters of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. The book is rather well known, and, um, but not everybody has probably heard it or maybe not read it. So I'll give you just a, a quick little background. Um, the book is very clever, uh, very insightful, um, has an interesting way of looking at the Christian pursuit from the opposite end of the spectrum, from the demon's view. The book is a uh, fictitious account uh, of advice given from Uncle Screwtape to his demon in training and also his nephew, Wormwood. Lewis takes a hierarchical view. I'll explain that in a second of the demon world in that he takes a possession or a position that each of us have a demon assigned to us kind of like a guardian angel we've also got a demon that's assigned to us and that there is a chain of command that these demons have to answer to there are many lessons that uncle Screwtape is teaching wormwood but the one which i'm referring is whether to be active or passive in their attack in their attack plan for a particular circumstance particularly if the human in Wormwood's charge is moving down a path of destruction, the advice is, leave him alone. Make him think that all is fine. The human will have no reason to change and will end up right where we want him, in hell. Church discipline is Christ's designed way of lovingly reaching out to instruct and adjust the course of fellow believers and bring them back into a right direction. Just like God has ordained that mankind is, the, is to be part of spreading the gospel, mankind is also to be part of each other's sanctification. He has ordained within the church that we, as the body of Christ, are to be part of the discipline and correction of fellow believers through the instruction of God's word 
being delivered through love and humility, not pride and self-righteousness. Therefore, our job is to step in and do what we can to be the guardrail for our fellow believers. The reason uh, Scripture speaks so much of humility and love, I think, because when anything is said in humility and love, it's far more likely to be welcomed. It's also far more likely to be pondered and ultimately applied into the life of the person. When we are sarcastic or uncaring in our tone and approach, it appears uh, domineering, and generally people aren't that interested in listening to you. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus says to go first to your brother alone. We do not like to have our faults broadcast to the community. Jesus knows this. This is why he, he saves that step for the very end. First, go alone. Last step, take it before the whole church. It's the ultimate in pursuing your brother or sister to the end of hoping to bring them back to the fold. <clears throat> a, uh, a particular passage that kind of highlights this, it's James chapter 1, no, James 5, 18 to 19. I'll just read it real quick. James 5, 18 to 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Bringing this back, kind of bringing this back around to the, to the family parable, when a father corrects his children, he's showing love to them. To humble or to humbly correct is to love. To humbly correct is to love. To allow them let's say, to allow them to run headlong into the street without looking, to not correct this, a father would be hating his child and just waiting for that, that life-threatening collision. When a father does not correct his children from insolence, he's paving the way for his children to not respect authority and in the end run into trouble with work supervisors, community leaders, perhaps even the law. A loving father corrects attitudes, not actions, for the safety and happiness of the child now and for their entire life. Ultimately, if the child has a difficult time taking instruction from the parents, it becomes much harder for them to, re re uh, to receive instruction from Scripture and even from God himself. In the same way, we as family members in Christ are to pursue our brothers and sisters so as to love them and keep guardrails in place for the congregation. However, this starts first with us pursuing Christ in our own life, taking the log out of our own eye, and in humility and love, offering correction and encouragement to others. Um, have you ever watched a young child take a drink or get something to eat um, from, from their mother? Do... Uh, does the child stop short of taking a drink and then look up at his mother and say, what do you put in here? I mean, that just doesn't happen. They, um, they, they trust mom. It's, it's just an implicit thing. And this is, um, this is the absolute trust and comfort um, that Christ is referring to. Jesus gives us his perspective in verse 5 and 6 that everyone is precious in his sight. Whoever receives one such child in my name, this is in Matthew 18, 5 and 6, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and be thrown into the depth of the sea. We need to first think of others, not ourselves. How often do we cause others to stumble because of our own selfish ambition? I remember as a teenager being dragged into and also being the dragger inner of other people to get them into trouble. I don't do that much anymore. Um, but um, whether it's doing something that you just shouldn't do, mom, dad said no, or maybe something that's kind of maybe half illegal or whatever, um, embarrassingly enough, for some, that doesn't stop in your teen years. Um, many still do it. 
Um, look at what Jesus is, uh, has to say about people that do such things. In verse 6, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, don't be fooled. The action doesn't necessarily have to be implicitly evil. It could be passive. You could be lazy. You could ask someone to be lazy with you when they don't have time where they shouldn't be. You're dragging them down. Um, in Matthew, uh, let's, did I do that? I did, I missed a page. That's okay, we'll probably be out of time anyway. Um, Matthew 7 to 9, or Matthew 18, 7 through 9. Temptations are not God's punishment. This is our whole sermon here. Jesus' comment on how temptations are necessary speaks to two fundamental concepts. Temptations are, are an obvious fallout of the first sin, but probably more profoundly, it's a necessary part of letting mankind do what it must in order for man's love towards God to be genuine and not forced or robotic. Therefore, we use temptation, if, if we refuse temptations that come, it provides a way for us, for love to flow and its truth and genuineness uh, and moving us forward and loving others enough to correct them in humility. Pastor Jeremy smoke, uh, spoke early um, in our series on the drastic nature of dealing with sin. Like plucking out your eye or actually cutting off your hand uh, and use verses 8 and 9 in Matthew 18 to make his point. But don't get caught up in the literalness of the words. Um, understand that Christ is trying to say sin is serious Sin keeps us from eternal life. Do whatever it takes. Dealing with sin is truly a life or death situation. Uh, we do not, we do this not only for our own sakes, but for those around us. I like Daniel's example last week of the black widow spider that's crawling up your friend's arm. Um, you can't just notice it and walk away. It's deadly. We have to see sin in the lives of others just as Jesus does. It's deadly. We must address sin in our midst and humbly attack it to, uh, to try and stay pure as individuals and as the body of Christ. James highlights this in his first chapter, verses 14 to 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We have to do what we can to stop sin from growing in the body. Matthew 10 to 14, this little section, Jesus talks about pursuing the one sheep. This section feeds directly into the next one. But it also reaches back to verse 1 and brings it all together. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man had a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Christ pursues each individual sinner to come to him. If we notice an individual who has gone astray, we are to pursue them and bring them back to the family so that they won't perish, which ties ties it to the passage before about do whatever it takes to attain eternal life. We're to have so much love for our church family, for the members of our body, that we will pursue them. Then moving into verse 15, Jesus gives us specific instructions on how to do that. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, which means you have brought him back. He is now part of the fold. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established in the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now we're back to Daniel's cliffhanger. What if your brother didn't or won't listen to you? Then what? Well, then church, church discipline escalates. One step at a time. You don't say, he didn't listen to me, so I'm going to go broadcast it to the church. Personal accountability is church discipline. So the very first step, let's say I say something in an elder board meeting that's not right, and I get another elder that says, Jeff, that's not right. And I say, you're right. That's church discipline. But it's humble, it's, it's easy, it's quick, fixed. We didn't have to take it all the way to the body of Christ. Um, and at that point, it keeps it private, and I don't have to tell everybody how stupid I was because I thought something weird. So it all starts first one-on-one. -on -one. Moving from verse 15 to 16 is merely an escalating step in the process. But because we are to uh, contemplate our own sin and our own situation, whether we are in verse 15 or 16 or 17, the escalation of church discipline should be deliberate and not rushed. Starting in verse 15, Jesus says, go to your brother, you alone. Don't start talking about it to others. You need to go to that person and deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. There might be a self-interest reason for that. <clears throat> um, you might find that you yourself were the one that was in the wrong. Uh, you might find that they were. Either way, Praise God, if this happens, you're both learning how to sanctify your lives and grow in your walk with Christ. Remember, the guardrail we use to determine if we need to address our brother in Christ is whether the issue is addressed in Scripture. We never deal with opinion when it comes to sin or when it comes to correcting that sin. Daniel instructed last week that two things need to be in play for us to move on that. First, sin must be known, not assumed. Second, the sin must be addressed specifically in Scripture. Wearing purple plaid pants in public might be a social faux pas, but you will not find it in Scripture as a sin. So we just got to be smart about such things. Um, so, so that we can contemplate this maybe in a very real sense, let's develop an analogy. I've got a couple of them. Let's say, for instance, that your married Christian friend has found a new love and wants to pursue another person in adultery. Um, now, this is sin that's addressed and found in Scripture, and you have been made painfully aware of its actuality and its truth. So you've gone to this person alone, individually, to get them to stop, repent, and return from their disobedience to Scripture and to their spouse. They've refused. So you bring two or three into the mix, not 20 or 30, two or three, and you try and reason with your friend. Also, it does not say to go tell two or three, because uh, that can border on gossip as well. But we're to bring them to the discussion and explain the issue to our brother with them there. By the end of the discussion, we should be able to verify the wrong done, and if there's true confession and repentance, then we would pursue reconciliation and we will have won our brother or sister. However, this, if this doesn't really solve the problem and the brother or sister holds tight to their sin, then we bring in a much larger group of people to assist in bringing the lost brother or sister around to right thinking and change their life to pursue Christ and him alone. Remember David in Psalm 51, against you alone, Lord, have I sinned. Another example could be a brother or sister who stole a single dollar. And you can address the issue and tell them that they need, they need to return the dollar. And if they 
You know, it's, it's stealing is what it was. If they refuse to downplay the sin and say, it's just a dollar. You see, the problem is the attitude. It's not the action. You know, we don't just have to talk about adultery. We can talk about stealing. We can talk about lying. Any of that stuff, you hold on to it, it's the attitude that needs to be addressed. So many parents do the same thing with the children. They think that the action's no big deal. They may be right, but where they were wrong is that the correction of the attitude didn't happen. The attitude precipitates the action. Guess what? As a child grows up, the attitude grows up, and the actions grow up. And it's the same thing in the church family. Remember, this process is not, it's not about us. It's about Christ and his church. It's about Christ and the witness of his church to the world, to be attractive to the world, and to bring about converts that want to be part of such an assembly. To pursue this course of action because of your feelings and your feelings got hurt, that is sin. We must be zealous for God's name, for God's people, and for God's church. Anything less is personal vanity. Remember the past sermons touched on godly sorrow leading to confession and repentance? This is what we're striving for, and it's known by its humility and its genuineness. After bringing in a small group to address the issue, if your brother or sister does not respond in this way but refuses to repent or admit their confession or repentance is necessary, then we must take it to the local church body. That's the next step. Another way to see this action is to interpret it uh, as the person in question spiritually pushing away the council. The local body of Christ is now enlisted in pursuing our Christian friend to get them to understand the gravity of their sin. If they don't respond to this step, then we move to excommunication. And there's that word again. Um, to be sure, it's a very serious step. But it's only a step. I think many believers think that it is the ultimate, the big, the final step. It is not. It is only the next step. At this time, I want to take a second to bring about an illustration that might help us to understand um, where this is going spiritually. I'm going to use a football example. So, Jeremy, I apologize if you don't quite get this. Um, but in college football, each year, uh, an offensive player is awarded the Heisman Trophy. Next to the national championship game, the Heisman Trophy is the pinnacle of the college football season. For those of you that know about the trophy, you know it has an iconic pose. The pose is like this. You have the, you have the ball carrier holding the football close to their chest with one arm pushing away and stiff-arming the oncoming defender and the leg trying to get out of the way, right? Um, this is a great picture of a brother and sister in Christ who have, been, who have refused to listen to the counsel of the one, of the two or three, or of the church in general. Now, you would never make the mistake of the Heisman Trophy runner as being a member of the defense, right? Um, it's obvious what team he's on. In such a way, a person who's holding tight to their sin and pushing away the counsel of the church has already decided which team they're on. The excommunication process is, is merely recognizing what the person is already affirming. The parallel, if we can go back to Israel, the parallel in the camp, in the wilderness, where the person has drawn the line and has come and has chosen that they're going to be on this side of the camp line and not that side. They made that decision. So many times we think that the church is the perpetrator. They're the blaming party and the one making the offensive move. But it isn't. It is not the church. The person shunning the humble and loving counsel of a God-fearing church is the one making the choice. The church is only affirming their choice. In this case, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. 
when I was putting this together, I kind of used the word unbeliever at this point. But we have to kind of pay close attention to the wording here. It doesn't say to judge that person as a sinner or condemn them as a sinner. It only says to treat them as one. The reason is because they have not listened, first, to the Word of God, second, to the Spirit of God, and third, to the people of God. This is a pronouncement against the attitude, the excommunication, it's a pronouncement against the attitude of the person, uh, what the person has towards their sin. Not necessarily the sin itself. I'd venture to say that if someone was caught in any sin, they would eventually be welcomed back into the body of believers if, and only if, there was genuine repentance and a deep desire to reconcile. It's not the act. It's the attitude. The attitude is the root of the problem. It's the reflection of the heart. And by extending the arm and holding tight to the, to the sin, the attitude is speaking loud and clear. Leave me alone. I love my sin and my life the way it is more than I love God and his church. Because this is the attitude, then excommunication is just simply the next step. It is affirming what they already are saying. Therefore, we treat them like a sinner, like an unbeliever. They may well still be a believer. We just don't know that. And as a church, we can't affirm that they are. I hope this is clear. If it isn't, take notes, come back next week, ABF. We'll try and flesh it out a little bit. Um, excommunication seems like a scary word, but it, it simply means to remove from communion with the body of Christ. A believer cannot be in spiritual communion with an unbeliever. So it's just a picture of showing that within the church family. The best we can tell at this point is that the person under church discipline appears to be a non-believer. However, it is not the last step. It's a step that shows the world, other believers, and our brother and sister that the church is serious about its purity, it's serious about the purity of God's name, and it's serious about the protection of the flock from approved sin in the life of a person. It should also be mentioned here that we as a church are not acting on our own. We are simply reflecting the verdicts and the disciplines of God himself as explained in the scriptures. You see, as a father, I want to protect my, my children from harm so that they can reach maturity in this life and live happily ever after. This is exactly what God has in mind for us, to live happily ever after, ever after, ever after, for all of eternity. Whatever pain we have to endure here at this time is small potatoes compared to the pain and suffering eternally in hell. So again, excommunication is only a step to first cause an apparent unbeliever to take their sin more seriously and to protect the body of Christ from infection. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, it's a step to protect the church from a known illness or disease. In this case, the acceptance of spiritual disease that has left, that if it's left unattended, can cause uncertainty in the body can cause confusion about what to do with sin and cause others in the body to stumble. That references back to verses 1 through 6. So if I'm going to wrap this up, and it's about time, the fundamental concepts of church discipline are, first, God's holiness and his love for his name, and God's love for his people and his church. As we've seen over the last few weeks, God holds the church accountable for his own sin. Surprisingly enough, he holds us accountable for the sins of our brothers if we have the ability to address it and we don't. This is why pastors, elders, deacons, general people within the church will confront you to discuss certain issues or sins. It's out of a deep desire to pursue Christ and his mission that we have. And when I say we, I mean all of us. We're held accountable to God, the Father, to do this. 
We're to pursue the purity of our fellow believers as a father or mother would pursue that for their own children. We're to pursue the purity uh, of our fellow believers because of the example it sets for the other members of our family at MCC who are watching and learning what it means to be a follower of Christ and a member of the church. So with that in mind, I got just a couple quick questions for you to contemplate before we go. First, are you fully ready to obey Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18 when your brother or sister does not listen? Or will you stop short of full obedience? Second, will you be willing to receive it as a kindness and as an act of love when your brother or sister in Christ finds it necessary to come to you? Church discipline is a multi-layer process. As a member of the body, we are bound to find ourselves on either side of the issue from time to time. It starts out and hopefully rarely goes any further than a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but it can escalate as necessary to get the attention of the individual who is holding on to their sin. The attention of the body of believers um, to help when necessary is required. Church discipline is the most loving thing that we can do for a family member. Delaying or avoiding it is a display of hatred that is not to be found in the greatest institution on earth, the church. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for a time to, uh, to share your word and to understand better church discipline and how it is set as a guardrail for the benefit and for the eternal security of those who attend your local church. I pray that uh, as we go forward today, we can stay focused on who you are in our lives and be ready to help our fellow believers to stay on track with you as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.